The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm just, I'm really excited this morning because I get to preach an easy passage. The last couple, my goodness. So I'm really excited. It's relatively easy. I should say nothing in 1 Peter is easy, but compared to the other ones I've done, this is great. 1 Peter 4, and we're going to actually read this passage together because it's only 11 verses. So that's pretty awesome. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. If you're visiting, we've got some Bibles at the back. Actually, you can grab a copy. If you stick your hand up, one of the ushers will stick one in your hand so you can follow along with us. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result... They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according so, sorry, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and sober mind, of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Father, we pray that you'll speak to us through your word. Give me the grace to communicate it faithfully and give us all ears and hearts and eyes to receive and see and hear what your spirit is saying this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've had the experience, I'm sure you all have, of having a deadline that you have to meet, whether it's at work, whether it's some other thing, a pressing, urgent deadline. And I don't know if it's made you act differently because of the deadline, the the priorities you set, the things that become not important, not necessary. There's a clarity and focus that a deadline brings. Um, To give you one example of how this might work, how it worked for us, Dash and I got the privilege of traveling. Uh, We did a bit of a world trip uh, in 1997 where we visited lots of different countries and got got one of those round-the-world tickets and we were traveling for seven weeks. We spent a fair bit of time in Sri Lanka and the bulk of our time was going to be in the U.S. and Canada. But we had this small window of being in Europe because of the way our flights worked. And we thought, well, we're going to be landing in London. We should see London and, and maybe pop across to Paris, Dash had some relatives there, and so we thought, well, let's squeeze it in. And so we had four days to do London and Paris, four days. 
And so we got off a plane, we got on a ferry, got to Paris, and then the next morning we hit the streets. We're like, okay, we got two days, let's go. And so from I think like eight in the morning or seven in the morning, we were walking the streets of Paris, Champs Elysees. We were Louvre. We can't go in, can't see the Mona Lisa. Forget it. We look at it from the outside, you know, and we climb the Eiffel Tower. Like go, go, go. I think we got home that night at like nine or ten at night, probably later. Crashed, smashed. And got up the next morning and did it again. All right, let's go. Get on that boat. We're on the, on the river. We're looking at all the bridges. And we saw, you know, uh, the chapels. And oh God, Notre Dame, wow, can't go inside. No time. But hey, it looks great. Take the photo. And we just go, go, go. Then we kind of caught a ferry back, arrived in London, crashed, got up the next morning. We're on the Red Rover bus. All right, let's go. Let's go. It was like that. It's like you got a deadline. You got kind of two days to do this. You could smash it out. It was exhausting. But again, when, you, when you're on a deadline, you find this endurance and this energy that just drives you. And, and you, you, everything becomes really clear. What are the things I really must do? And as we come to this passage, it's kind of what Peter's trying to convey to us. And the deadline he's talking about is literally that, a deadline. And he wants us to live in light of that. So my message this morning is called The Bucket List. And again, you might be familiar with the, the movie reference starring Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. And it's the story of these two guys who are facing that deadline. They meet each other in, in a cancer hospital and they know that they've got a death sentence. They know that their time is running out. And they come up with this idea of the things that they really want to do before that day happens. And I want to show you just the opening s- scene um, to kind of get you to start thinking this way. So if we can show the video. Edward Perryman Cole died in May. It was a Sunday afternoon, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It's difficult to understand the sum of a person's life. Some people would tell you it's measured by the ones left behind. Some believe it can be measured in faith. Some say by love. Other folks say life has no meaning at all. Me, I believe that you measure yourself by the people who measured themselves by you. What I can tell you for sure is that by any measure, Edward Cole lived more in his last days on earth than most people managed to wring out of a lifetime. I know that when he died, his eyes were closed and his heart was open. just show you that to get you to think about what will people say about the way you lived your life when you're no longer here? What will they say about you? Will they say that even though your eyes were closed, your heart was wide open? Will they say that you lived your life with meaning and purpose? That's kind of the questions that Peter wants us to wrestle with. And throughout this letter, he's been talking to this group of people and using words like that they're pilgrims, they're sojourners, they're, they're travelers, with this idea that this is not their eternal home, it's not their forever home. And they ought to live with that uneasy tension of kind of being here, but not really being part of this here. 
And he's talked to them about how to engage in a meaningful way and hold on to their faith in Jesus, even in the face of present hostility. So in chapter 1, he calls on them to be people of hope that live with this eternal perspective. And then in the latter part of chapter 1, he calls them to be people who are holy, to be a holy people. And as we move into chapter 2, he talks about being a worshipful community and a worshipping people. And in chapter uh, 2 and 3, we looked a few weeks ago about how they were to be a submissive people and live in right relationship with each other in human institutions. And then last week, we, we looked at how they were called on to continue to be people who did good even in the face of opposition, and to be able to give a, a reason and a, and a defense for why they believe what they believe. Because living that way would raise questions of, of the hope that they had, and they were supposed to live that way. And so now we come to this section where Peter's wanting to kind of conclude his thinking about how they were to engage with other people, the world around them, the world outside them. And we, we, he signals that he's coming to an end here because in verse 12, it's clear, dear friends, he starts a whole new section. So this is the last bit that he also started in 2 verse 11. Notice in 2 verse 11, he says, dear friends. And so they're kind of the bookends of him talking about how to engage with the world around us. And then he ends this section with what is known as a doxology, which is just a Christian hymn of the glory of God. And often those things come at the end of a thematic section. So these are Peter's last words about how to engage with those around us. And he makes it clear that he wants them to see this deadline. And you see that there are two references here of the two different ends that he has in mind. The first one comes in verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. That, that's one deadline he's talking about. That all of us will die. And that was one of the accusations the world was leveling against Christians. He goes, what, what is the point of you being Christians? You're going to die just like me. And Peter says, that's true. We are all going to die. If we're all judged by human standards, death will be the finality for us all. So that is one deadline. The second one is in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. So whether we don't physically die, there is another end, a definitive culminating final end that is coming that will meet all of humanity. The exclamation point of God's final word in human history. That end is coming and it is sure. And so Peter is saying in light of that, this is your bucket list your Christian way of living. And he does this in the negative by saying things that they ought not to do and in the positive, encouraging them and admonishing them of things that they are supposed to do. Peter's bucket list. Let's have a look. The first section, verses one to six, it's his negative statement. He says, in light of the fact that you're gonna die and one day face the judge of all, we're all gonna do that, whether we believe in Jesus or not. Or in light of the fact that the end of God's history is working in history, the end of human history is going to come. And in light of that, this is how you should not live. Verse 1 to 6 of chapter 4 is all about, if you were to summarize it, of how not to live in light of the end. And so if you pick up nothing else, verse 2 is the key verse. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives. There is the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. And throughout this section from verse chapter 3, verse 18, all the way down, Peter mentions the body over and over again. Because he wants them to understand that this physical reality is not forever. 
And so what you do with your body while you have the rest of your earthly lives matters. It really matters. So if you hear nothing else, here's the big idea. And then after that, you can nod off if you want. That's fine. But I want you to take this away with you. The question that Peter wants to wrestle with or the answer he wants to give you or the challenge he wants to lay before us is to live the rest of our lives for the will of God and for his glory. That's it. To live the rest of your lives, however long you might have, whether that's a day, whether that's 20 years, 50 years, or whether you're alive when Jesus comes back. This is the thing he wants you to know. Live the rest of your life to do the will of God and for his glory. And in these first six verses, he says, if you're doing that, then you're not going to waste time living in sinful desires that you used to live. He says, you, you wouldn't do that. In light of that end, in light of that deadline, then that would be a stupid thing to do. So the first challenge he gives us is don't live the rest of your time. Don't waste time in indulging in sinful pleasures. Therefore, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. He's saying, in light of the fact that what Jesus has done, he takes us back to chapter 3, verse 18, which says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death, notice there, in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then he goes on to say, because when we identify with Jesus, we're done with sin too, or we ought to be done with sin. This is not saying that somehow our suffering sanctifies us. Some people interpret it this, this way. Peter is saying that when we identify with Jesus, it should change the way we think about sin. Those who suffer should arm themselves in this with the same attitude. What is he calling on? He's calling on Christians to have a ruthlessness against sin. Kind of like what Jesus did when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your arm causes you to sin, chop it off. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God maimed, as it were, than to forfeit entering into the kingdom of God because of your indulging in sin. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Don't live the way you used to. Verse 3, he says, you have wasted enough of your time living this way. In the past, when you didn't know Jesus, this is how you used to live. And then he goes on to describe it. In the past, you did what the pagans do. You, you chose to do the same thing. You lived in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and all of this stuff. He says, these things that were associated with pagan idolatrous festivals of sexuality, the, the three of those words carry that idea of, of sexual behavior, debauchery, lust, orgies, and two have to do with abuse of alcohol, drunkenness and wild carousing, partying. He says, you used to do those things. But why would you do them anymore? Because you know what Christ endured to set you free from that. And because Christ has suffered, you now have a choice. You don't have to give in to the slave master of sin. You've been set free, as Paul says in Romans 6. You've been released. You are dead to sin. The, the power of sin no longer has authority over you. So why would you waste your time in that anymore? It would be like if, somebody, if you were a slave... If you were a slave, in, in parts of America, people, you know, had African-American people in slavery for years and years until the Civil War. Imagine yourself being in that environment, being a slave, and somebody else dying for you to set you free. And you are released, and you're free, and you're, you're heading for freedom. 
And then all of a sudden, for some strange reason, you change your mind and you turn back and you head back to the house where you were a slave and you submit yourself again to become a slave. Peter is saying, how ridiculous would that be? And he says, how can you live another moment wasting your time? And then he goes on to say, now, this might not go well for you. In verse 4, he says, the people around you, your family and friends that used to run alongside is the way the Greek works, that you used to participate in these activities with. Well, they don't understand. They're surprised. They don't understand why you don't join them, verse 4. And they will react to that. They will heap abuse on you. But, but, he says, rest in the fact that there is a judge and he's ready to judge. And he's the judge of the living and the dead. To to summarize, he's the judge of everyone. And they will have to give an account before this judge. But you don't have to fear that day. So even if their worst leads to your demise, even if the worst harassment and abuse that they can heap on you leads to your death, you can rest assured in the fact that you will not face the judge like they're going to face the judge. Because this judge is also your father. This judge is also the one who sent Jesus to suffer on your behalf, to bring you to himself. You have nothing to fear when you stand before this judge. So he says, so don't waste your time, even for a moment, indulging in the passions and the lusts that drove your previous pre-Christian life. Even though it might lead to harassment, rejection from friends and family who don't understand why you don't do the things you used to do anymore. Verse 7, he now changes gears and he says, okay, now let's look at it from the positive. He says, the end of all things are near. Therefore, be something. So before he said, don't do something. Now he's saying, this is how I want you to be. Be alert and sober-minded and pray. Now, this is the interesting words that Peter uses here. Be alert. The, the word carries the idea of don't be fuzzy-brained. In other words, don't be in this drunken stupor. And that's a great word to use in light of the fact that he's just talked about while living, carousing, partying. He's saying don't be like that, but be clear-headed, be sharp, be alert, be vigilant, be ready, because Jesus is coming back. The end is coming. Be prepared. In other words, he's carrying with this phrase all of the things that Jesus talked about when he said, don't be like the virgins that were not prepared. Don't be like the slaves and the servants who were not ready for the master's return. Don't be like those unprepared where the thief comes in and breaks in because they weren't expecting and they weren't ready. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Be prepared. And then the other word he says is, be sober-minded. Now, this is don't be erratic. Don't get overexcited. Or a modern translation would be keep cool. Be cool. And what he's having in mind is that so often, as we would know, the temptation with the second coming is what? Jumping into prophecies and analyzing every world event and trying to predict the coming of Jesus and figure out, okay, I've got a date. I think he's coming. Peter's saying, no, don't lose your head. Don't get carried away with the hype. Keep cool. Be sober, watchful, yes, but don't get hyped up, but pray. So often, Christians fall into one of the two extremes, don't we? We either go, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. I've been hearing about that for years. And we we neglect that sense of watchfulness and, and vigilance and alertness and prayerfulness. 
the other extreme is to get so hung up about prophecies and predictions and theories and conspiracies and we're looking for Jesus under everything. He's coming. And Jesus warned about that. There was a, an incident in 1987 at the NCAA basketball regional final, college basketball regional final. And it was between Louisiana State University and Indiana. And in the last few minutes of the game, Louisiana State were in front by eight points. And as often happens, they began to coast. They started watching the clock. And they just kind of not really playing the game, just letting the clock just kind of tick down and tick down and just watching the clock the whole time. And even the commentators noticed how their game strategy had changed because they were in front. And what happened was as the game continued, Indiana were able to make up the game, the, the, the points that they were short by, and actually win the game by one point. And they went on to actually win the NCAA college final for that year. So often as Christians, we get hung up watching the clock that we're not playing the game. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not living the way we're supposed to be living, intentionally, vigilant, watchful, prayerful. Peter says, pray. Kind of reminds us of Jesus in the garden saying to his disciples, watch and pray. Be vigilant and pray because the days are evil. And, and Paul in Ephesians 6, interestingly, notes prayer as being one of the spiritual weapons we're supposed to embrace. And in the context of him talking about the armor of God, he talks about prayer. And he says this, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, there it is again, be alert. Be alert, vigilant, watchful, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. What's Paul saying? He's saying, come on, guys, we're in a spiritual battle here. The days of evil are coming. We can stand as we clothe ourselves in the armor of God and pray. And not just pray defensively, but pray offensively that the gospel might go out, that I might have boldness to speak because the end is coming prayerfulness. So I'm expecting all of you to be there on Friday night. Prayerfulness. Keep watch and pray. Then the second thing he talks about is love. Verse 8, above all, not that it's more important than watchfulness or prayerfulness, but in the summary of what he's going to say, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love. The, the Ultimate Christian virtue. Jesus said that in John 13, 1 Corinthians 13, a well-quoted passage. 1 John chapter 4 talks about how can we say we love God if we don't love one another. Even in Peter, over and over again, Peter has reminded these Christians of the centrality of love. But then he goes on to spell out some practical ways to display this love one to another. The first one, he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Our love for one another in light of the coming end or to express itself through forgiveness. He's not talking about covering sins in a dodgy way. He's not talking about, okay, we're not going to say anything about your infidelity or your immorality. No, he's saying this is about not holding on to grudges. It's about letting things go. We talked about that last week. This is about having a clean slate with your brother and sister. He's saying, look, life is too short. You're either going to die someday soon or Jesus is going to come someday soon. Why would you hold on to unforgiveness? 
Peter would say that's irreconcilable with the God who has extended grace to you so abundantly. Jesus said, how can you who have received the Father's forgiveness withhold that same generous forgiveness against a brother or a sister, against anyone? Life's too short to hold on to grudges. That's what Peter is saying. So act in love, extend forgiveness. Don't be like this little boy who was having a, a fight with his brother one day and it was really nasty and he was really angry with his brother and he didn't want to talk to his brother all day. Even though his brother tried to kind of make things right and ask for forgiveness, this little boy was not interested. Anyway, he came to the end of the day and he was ready, getting ready for bed and his mum was sitting with him and talking about the situation from the day and said, don't you think it's time to talk to your brother and, and work this out before you go to bed tonight? And she reminded him, she said, you know, you know the Bible says that we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. And when she said that, this boy got a strange look on his face and he was really perplexed and troubled by it. And then he finally turned to his mother and he said, but how do I make the sun from going down? <laughs> well, we're so often like that. We want to hold on to things. And Peter says, no, let it go. Life is too short. The end is coming. Jesus is coming back. And let your life be characterized by the same grace, the same generosity and forgiveness that you have received. Love covers over a multitude of sin. Verse 9, another expression of this love that Peter is talking about is offering hospitality. Now, again, we've talked about hospitality at PCC before. Think about that. Of all the things that Peter could have mentioned here, he sticks it in this list hospitality in the bucket list this is really important for Peter and, and in, in, in the, the Greco-Roman world this was significant because there were many Christians who were traveling missionaries evangelists and there were no safe places for them to stay and Peter knows that as persecution grows in the Roman Empire there's going to be more and more Christians traveling looking for safe haven looking for safe places and he's talking to a whole bunch of people that were not the highest class in their, in their society. And he's saying, look, even in your personal lack, even in your financial difficulty, offer hospitality. And he gives a qualification without grumbling. Without grumbling. Because there's no generosity, there's no grace if it comes with reluctance. He's saying, be a cheerful giver when it comes to hospitality. Again, reflect your father's heart. Be gracious. And like me, you've probably traveled to other parts of the world. I've had the privilege of traveling to many places and doing ministry in Africa and Sri Lanka, and I am staggered by how people live this out. In, in the face of nothing, they're just so generous in being hospitable. There was one time I went to a pastor's house, and they gave up their room and their bed, and they slept on the floor so that I could sleep on a bed. I'm like, wow, that's powerful. And Peter says, in light of the end, live that way. Live with nothing in the tank. Live a generous, giving, hospitable life. Verse 10, this is about serving and using our gifts. And he's saying, use whatever God's given you to be a blessing to others. Each of you means every single one of us has a gift. And I know sometimes we struggle with trying to identify that and figure that out. But the Bible, not just here, but in 1 Corinthians 12, makes it clear that each one of us has something to give, to contribute. And he says, use it in a way that you will serve others as faithful stewards. This word carries the idea of being someone who's entrusted with a part of God's property. It's not yours. You've received it. He's given it to you. Now you have to be a steward of it. Steward God's grace in its various forms. It comes in all shapes and sizes, all different gifts, all different contributions. And then he highlights two. 
which in our mind would probably be in the opposite ministry spectrums. Speaking, which many people would elevate and go, that's, that's the real deal right here. Standing behind this pulpit, this is where it's all at. Yeah, and Peter goes, yeah, some people have that gift. And that's been given to them. And they should behave and conduct themselves and use that gift in the same way as stewards, as faithful stewards, as though they've received it. And they should speak with the power and enabling that God gives. And then he goes to the opposite extreme, serving. Those who serve should also do it the same way, not grudgingly, not comparing them to the guy who's speaking or the lady who's speaking or somebody who's leading worship or on the stage doing something dramatic and spectacular. No, in the same way, recognizing that God has given me this gift and I will be faithful and I will steward it and I will use it in the resource, in the strength that God provides. Why? So that in all things, God may be praised. That's the end goal. Whether you speak or you serve or you do sound or you serve someone coffee or you greet someone or you set up chairs or you do crash or you do Sunday school, whatever you do, that's the end goal, to make his name great. To look past yourself and to go, look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at my gift. Aren't I blessed? Look at what God's given me. I'm better than you. Peter leaves no room for that. He says, in light of the end, Your bucket list ought to be to use whatever God's given you for His glory and His honor. I want to show you another quick video clip, which is very challenging. Hey guys, I got you each a gift. No way, Jesus, why? Awesome. Well, I just love you guys, so I wanted to get you something. (laughs) So nice. Laura, you first. Wow, this is so exciting. Oh, will you look at this, a little eight ounce can of Coke? This is perfect for me. I looked everywhere to find a gift for you, and this just seemed to fit. I love it. Drew? Yeah, your turn. All right. <laughs> no way, Jesus. Seriously? Oh, yeah. 20 ounces of Coke? Yeah, baby. Woo! This is awesome. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. You're welcome. Laura, we got to go show Richard our gifts. Come on. Okay. Hey, Laura, is there a problem? No. I mean, well, yeah, kind of, you know. It's just that every time you give people gifts, you always give everyone else more than you give me. What do you mean? I mean, like, I open my gift and, oh, cute, eight ounces, and then Drew opens his gift and, hello, 20 ounces. Oh, I know what you mean. Well, that gift is for Drew. Well, that's what I want. Uh, Go get it for me. Okay, if that's what you want. Yeah. I got a liter. I know it's one liter of God's sweet goodness. Jesus gave it to me. He did? Yes. You know what? You're going to meet somebody with a bigger bottle, and you are going to be so mad. Laura, check it out. I got an upgrade. Coke 3.0. That is awesome. I know. (laughs) Well, isn't that just great? Yeah. Hey, Jesus, you rock. Thanks, Drew. What is wrong with you? Why are you holding back your best from me? I gave you my best. Don't you see what's happening here? You're letting everyone else's gifts steal your joy. No, Jesus, you are stealing my joy by giving everyone else more than you give me. Laura, I picked this gift out for you. That's what I wanted you to see. I don't care. Until you can look past this, all you're going to see is a can of Coke. Profound. Can we look past the can of Coke? Because that's what Peter wants us to see here. It's not about the gift. It's about the giver. It's about his glory and it's for his name's sake. In light of the end, 
That's what should be on your bucket list. Jesus, I want to make your name great. If I can get the band to jump up. A couple of concluding thoughts. In the movie, in the bucket list, there's this really poignant scene, a really profound scene where Morgan Freeman's character and Jack Nicholson are sitting on top of the Egyptian pyramids and that was one of the things on their list and they're kind of chatting and, and Morgan Freeman's character says to, to Jack Nicholson, you know there's an Egyptian myth about the two questions they will ask you before you enter into heaven. And these are the two questions. One of them is, have you found joy in your life? Have you found joy in your life? And the second question is, have, has your life brought joy to others? Has your life brought joy to others? And he said that if you can answer those two questions in the affirmative, then you'll be allowed entrance into heaven. Now, again, we know the Bible makes clear that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I've kind of flipped these questions a little bit in light of what Peter has to teach us here. And I've given you Peter's two bucket list questions. And they read something like this. Have you found the joy of knowing Christ and living for him? Sit with that. Have you found the joy of knowing Christ and living for him? That will be the question that you will have to answer. Because there is great joy that comes from knowing Jesus and doing his will. The second question, has your life brought glory to God in your service to others? Or has it been about you drawing attention to yourself Comparing yourself, using your gifts or your abilities or your resources or your time to feather your own nest, to draw you know, power and value and, and self-worth from all of those things? Or has it been about, Jesus, it's all about you, it's all for you, it's all to you, Jesus, it's all about you? Yeah. Those are the two questions that I want you to sit with and wrestle with and think about in light of your life. And I want you to think about your own bucket list. Maybe you have one, maybe you don't, maybe you think you're not going to need one because you've got plenty of time. Peter would challenge us to consider how we live the rest of our days here, however long they might be. So why don't you take a moment, bow your head, close your eyes, and just consider how you're living your life. What do the choices and priorities that govern your life show about the things that really matter to you. What drives your life? What brings you joy? Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit.